Welcome. You're listening to Recover Like a Mother, the podcast dedicated to mothers in recovery. I'm your host, Lane Kennedy. This episode is being brought to you by You Are Not Alone, a membership created to support your recovery. Daily habits become lifetime practices. Change one thing, your life changes. You can learn more over at recoverlikeamother.com forward slash membership. Right now, you can lock in a membership for as low as $9 a month. Grab the membership, lock in the price before the price goes up. You'll thank me later. Recoverlikeamother.com forward slash membership. And now let's get into this juicy episode. I'm really excited that you chose to listen to this podcast today. There are many, many podcasts today. It's kind of crazy how many, there's like 2 million podcasts or something like that. And you're hanging out with me and Karen today. Super grateful that you have decided to do that. Karen, who is a woman in long-term recovery, excited about that. She is the head of diversity and inclusion for a fortune 200 global tech company in plain speak. That means I would think she's kind of really important, but most importantly, she is a mother, a single mother of three boys. And I cannot wait for you to meet her. She is a joy and always smiling and sparkling and just a ball of positivity. So Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I do want to give one quick point of clarification. On our diversity inclusion team, we have three people, small but mighty. We have a chief diversity officer, and I lead all of our diversity inclusion belonging programs across the globe. Across the globe, again. <laughs> that's huge. And (laughs) diversity and inclusion is such a big topic these days. I I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's important. It's so important. In a perfect world, organizations don't even need people like me because we're all collectively doing that work together, which is the greatest hope. One day I won't need to do that work because everyone's doing it together. Yeah. That'll be great. That'll be great when that happens. <laughs> it's aspirational, right? <laughs> yes. I look forward to it. So Karen, you live in long-term recovery and what does that mean? What does that mean for you? Well, it definitely means that one day at a time I don't drink or drug. And it means that I practice a program of spirituality that connects me to, to my fellow humans and to my higher power, who I choose to call God. And to, to the world around me, to the universe, it, it, it means that I'm a part of that and I want to be impactful in that and be the best version of myself. And, and so that's really what long-term recovery means to me. How long did it take you to get sober? <laughs> 19 years. Whoa. I, I struggled in, in my active addiction for an alcoholism for 19 years. Did you know that you were an alcoholic struggling to get sober? Oh, I knew, I knew there was something wrong with me in the very beginning because I never, ever, I never drank or drugged in any social way by convention of how that could be described. I, and I knew that wasn't normal. I just, I, you know, I, I didn't know what to do about it for, for a long, long time. And it was my solution to things, which, you know, we hear so many of us say in the rooms of recovery. And by the time I realized I'd gone past the point where I might even try to do something about it, I, I couldn't anymore. It was just, I'm going to hang on to life by my fingernails. 
until it's over, I guess, in many ways is kind of how I felt. I didn't know... I really didn't know what to do. And I definitely experienced that loss of choice. It was like my mind told me, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. This is not the life I want to live. These are not the choices I want to make. And yet every single time I chose, I chose the thing I didn't want. And it, it, it literally was for me, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about cunning and baffling that was me. Like every day I would wake up and be like, how did I get here? And, you know, and then yet there I was. And I did try a few times along the way to get help. Actually, early on in my alcoholism and drug addiction, when I was 21, I went to a detox. But when I came out, I went to a meeting with my mother, actually, she took me and she didn't think I was, I was probably like the people in that room. And it could have been that they were different ages. It didn't really matter. It was enough for me to go, of course, I'm not like anyone in this room. I don't have a problem. And then I went on, you know, for another 14 years. Mm-hmm. It's so, you know, the people around us, they know that there's something quite not right, but when, but when we enter a program, they're like, no, 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 this can't be you. You don't right. have a problem. I hear this so often. No, no, can't be. This is not the problem. One of the things that I think is so brilliant is that now more and more people are starting to be vocal about recovery. And we're starting to come out and say, I'm sober. I stopped drinking. I am an alcoholic. I want to live clean and sober. There's so many women who are breaking that stigma, that shame. Yes. And I like, that's one of the reasons that I've kind of come out of the closet, so to speak of like, I can't, I think it's a disservice for me to stay quiet in the environment that we're moving in right now. Is that a part of your decision as well to come out and start talking about your sobriety, your recovery? Yes. Yes. It definitely, you know, so, so I got sober through through a facility, through detox, and then intensive outpatient for a year. But I also uh, went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that's where I've spent my recovery work in my journey in recovery. I mean, I've had outside therapy and some other support for other things that I was, you know, struggling with or dealing with to get better. I'd been in a circumstance of domestic violence. And so I needed recovery from, from, you know, that experience and understanding how to transition from victimhood to survivor. And then also someone who could pay it forward by helping others who've been through that. And then codependency, I needed to figure out that whole mess because I engaged in dysfunctional relationships because of my active addiction and alcoholism. So I definitely had you know, multiple ways that I had to help myself get better, but, but always through the tenets of the traditions that says it's a program of anonymity. It's about attraction, not promotion. And so I really, I, I sponsor people, you know, I've been of service, but all of that was done in such a way where I let the universe bring to, to me people who saw my bright light and felt attracted to what I had transformed my life and myself into. And that really was how I practiced my recovery. And this past year with the pandemic, you know, like many of us initially switched to Zoom meetings. You know, I wasn't going to the typical meetings in, in church basements anymore the way that we do. Or, you know, connecting with people I was sponsoring or working with. 
you know, that was over a virtual setting. And the problem is that meetings, you know, in that format are not necessarily all day, every day. And so I found myself on Clubhouse. And I loved that environment because there are meetings all day, all the time, you know, all week long. And we host meetings under Sprite Clubhouse. And I could participate in being of service, hosting meetings, moderating, sharing my recovery journey, and helping others around the world come together and talk about what they're struggling with, no matter what their path is. You know, a group of people came together and formed Sobriety Clubhouse, and I'm really excited to be a part of that. But of course, in that environment, there's some, you know, there's less anonymity. We're hosting meetings for people who are sober or even sober curious in all paths of recovery, struggling with, I like to say, all types of addictions or afflictions, because some of that is even mental health. And that's part of my experience struggling through addiction um, and alcoholism as well is, you know, struggling with mental health. So in that environment, you know, I understand there's not really anonymity there. I mean, we, you know, don't record those meetings, but it's public. Anyone on Clubhouse can participate and join if they want to come and attend the meeting, you know, that we post as public. And I made a decision that I would participate and participate in Sobriety Clubhouse on Instagram and share my story because I watched this past year so many people relapse and, and we've lost so many people. We've lost so many of our fellows who struggle with substance abuse disorder or mental health or suicidal ideation in the pandemic because we are digitally connected but we are socially isolated. And we can't come together in a meeting and hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer or, you know, share our experience, strength and hope with each other. And it just and the stigma. So many people still don't understand that alcoholism and drug addiction is a disease. Yeah. And that it's not that we're choosing. We are not we're not bad people. We are, you know, people who've lost the power of choice because we struggle with a disease that, you know, creates obsession and craving, which takes away choice. And so I decided to go in Clubhouse. I also recently wrote an article that was published in Psychology Today. And it talks about, you know, in this article, I talked about some of the statistics and data around the acceleration of substance abuse disorder and, and challenges with mental health in the past year. And it's striking, it's alarming, it should worry us. But I also talked about how incredible people who go through recovery are and, and what we have to offer in terms of our leadership skills and all that we bring to the table inside of organizations because of that work that makes us reflective and empathetic and you know, able to collaborate and able to work with a diverse group of people because we've learned to respect all these unique perspectives because drug addicts and alcoholics come from all walks of life, all religions, all socioeconomic backgrounds. Like we are like an unbelievably diverse group of amazing human beings when we are, you know, in recovery being the best version of ourselves. So I wrote this article and at the bottom, I referred to myself as a member of the recovery community. And I realized I'm like, I've outed myself in this moment. So I, you know what? I prayed on it <laughs> before I made that decision. And what I knew is 
you know, we learned this early in our recovery work, you know, my sponsor would say, what's your motive? What's your motive for doing that? What's your motive for, you know, whatever that is. And if my motive was pure and my intentions were about being of service to others, which is what I believe my purpose is. And that's what my motive was. And I knew that by doing that, someone out there might feel, you know, inspired by my story or less, you know, less alone, or may even, if they're not somebody struggling, may help them to have, you know, less, less of that stigma associated with their initial perception of who we are. And if I can do anything about that, that means the world to me. And, you know, so yeah, so, so I'm recovering out loud because there are a lot of us in the world who need help. And the thing about it is when, when Dr. Bob and Boo Wilson first created the traditions, their, their objective around the anonymity was if people saw famous people out in recovery and they relapsed, people might think it didn't work. If there were people who had a prominent position and they fell from you know, recovery and, and began drinking again, someone would say, well, well the program of recovery in A doesn't work. But fast forward over 70 years later, and we live in a much different world than the one that Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson lived in. And in the digital world that we live in, you know, we, we and especially so socially isolated, we need to see people recovering and doing it successfully and transforming their lives. And does that mean that, you know, I, I will never relapse? No, it doesn't guarantee that. But if I keep doing what I've been doing for 15 and a half years, and practice the steps of recovery and, you know, focus on being the best version of myself, being of service, there's less chance of that. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about recovering out loud, I mean, that's (laughs) right. Like is the, again, breaking the stigma, letting people know that it's not a shameful life Yeah. and sharing in the hope. There's a lot of hope. I love that you talked about the disease takes away choice. And if people could understand that, if they could really recognize that this is a disease, right? That it's in the Merck manual, it's a DC, it's, it's in the DC, what is that manual? The DC 5M or something that it's actually like, it is something to consider, to look at, to like, if somebody has diabetes, people are freaking out about it. If they have cancer, they're freaking out about it. Right. In a good way, like I got to help this person, but when they have alcoholism, it's stigmatized and we can't talk about it and they're shamed and they're sent away. It's, it's heartbreaking to me. So I love that you are taking a stand and being out about your recovery. What do your kids think about this? You have three boys, three, three amazing boys. And by the grace of God, when I got sober, my twins weren't quite a year old and my oldest was about four and a half. So none of them actually can ever remember being with me and seeing me struggling with drugs or alcohol. So thankfully that wasn't an experience that you know, that they've grown up with. And I know that's not always the case for many of us. We have a lot of my consequences happened before they showed up, but some of us had, you know, we struggle to to recovery and our children. You had your kid and got sober. Your first one. No, I didn't get sober until I had, after I had my twins. 
Okay. So then you got sober. So then, yeah. Okay. And they were a big part of, cause I was in this very destructive, abusive marriage yep. and common, you know, common story. Yep. Common and, abusive. Yeah. Struggling with drugs and alcohol. Yep. Afraid. Yeah. And you know, why, why, and I had tried after Zach was born when he was only a couple years old, I had tried and left with him, but didn't know about any recovery support services or Alcoholics Anonymous. So I spent about nine months as what, what we in the program like to call dry drunk and it didn't work out very well. So I went back and then I had the twins because that's how, you know, life has a sense of humor, right? But after they were born, that really was the end, like that was the end for me in terms of spiraling to a place where I finally met my surrender. And I got sober and I brought my boys to A meetings when they were, when, you know, when I first started going, they grew up in A with me. I would lug them up the stairs of this little place here in Denver called Vitality and I'd carry their car seats and Zach and you know, I'd have diaper bags and bottles and goldfish and snacks and Cheerios. And I'd walk into the room and sit down and all the people in the room would bounce my babies on their knees. And Zach would walk around the room. And whenever anybody swore in a meeting, he'd collect a quarter in the donation basket because he's like, you have to pay for the swear jar. Because <laughs> that was something we did at home. But they grew up in AA and they spent their whole lives going to meetings with me, going to sober dances and sober bowling and sober baseball and sober picnics. Dropping in to remind you to check out the members area where you can find tips and tricks and daily meditations all for you, your sanity, and to bring the calm life into your living. Okay, let's get back to the show. So we surround. Did you feel (laughs) safe bringing them into the rooms? I did. And you know, it's interesting in early recovery, there was a lot of conversation I would hear around whether or not people felt comfortable doing that. For me, I made the decision because when, you know, my first sponsor said to me early on, when we first connected, she said, well, first, the first thing she said to me that was life-changing was that I never had to feel the way I felt again. Yeah. And when I came into recovery, I was broken and empty and and, and I didn't want to feel like that anymore. I had suicidal ideations. I, I used, I like to say when I first started drinking and drinking, I had a hole in my soul and I was trying to fill it. By the time I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, my soul was the hole. And so hearing her tell me, I didn't ever have to feel that way again, you know, Oh, it meant the world to me. <laughs> it yeah. meant the world to me because I wanted something different. And then she told me, <laughs> you only have to change one thing. And I was like, oh, cool, what is that? And she said, everything. <laughs> and so that meant my people, places, and things, who, who I was surrounding myself with. And she wanted me to surround myself with people who were long time in recovery and whose lives had changed so I could do what they did to get what they got. And so for me, I had to go to any length to stay sober. And as a single mom with three kids, I needed to go to a meeting. So we all went to a meeting and yeah, sometimes they heard people, you know, that's why Zach would walk around with the basket for swears. Sometimes they heard language, you know, that maybe, maybe some people wouldn't have wanted them to hear. 
as young as they were, you know, my twins at one year, you know, at one years old, they didn't, they didn't know what people were talking about, but they do know this, like there'd be a big old biker sitting next to me, bouncing my twins on his knee, you know, sharing his experience, strength and hope. And then to the other side of me would be a lawyer and a young, you know, a young girl, woman who was 19, who'd been sober for five years. I mean, it was a room full of these unbelievable people and they wanted me to be there and to stay sober. So they welcomed my boys and I, and they were my family. And I needed that love because I needed to learn how to forgive me and love me. And I, I needed people to show me how to do that. And that's what they did. And they loved my boys. Like I know on the rare occasion, I would come to a meeting without them. People would immediately come up to me and be like, where are the boys at? And they'd be like, I came to the meeting to see the boys. Bringing Adrian to meetings has been, I don't know. He feels it. Yeah. He feels the, he's, the air of the room changes him. It's really magical. I, I, and then he won't come with me. I mean, during the pandemic, obviously he hasn't been in over a year with me, but he would typically come to a meeting with me every Saturday or Sunday morning for years. Yeah. And people have seen him grow up. And I just was talking to, I saw somebody on zoom and Adrian walked in and they're like, Holy crap what he's as tall as you you know and like when he first started going he was like you know up to my thigh you know like the middle of my thigh so you know to have that to have relationships he like he has his own relationships with members with other friends and they've been able to track him and see him and he he loves it he absolutely loves it I think it's one of the the hidden gifts that no one talks about like people don't talk about like what the kids experience as a result. I mean, yeah, it's obvious that mom is happier or dad's happier and the family works, but there's something that the kids actually get from it as well. It's so amazing. One of the things that you said was you were broken. You had an empty, you were empty, you suicidal ideation. And in that state, there's a lot of crazy thinking, right? There's a lot of chaos Mm -hmm. in the head, you know, and that can still happen, I believe in long-term recovery. So what I want to hear today is that when that comes up for you, what, what do you do? What do you do when you feel that isolation or that emptiness or that, oh my God, I'm going to die. Like what, what are the, what are the things that you reach for or take care of you? Well, so actually, I mean, I can definitely say gratefully, I don't have the level or depth of those kind of thoughts anymore. I just haven't experienced that in recovery. And that is, is a blessing and a gift. But that doesn't mean I don't have some bad days or days where I feel anxious or, you know, not on my spiritual beam, let's just say, uh, overreactive or even resentful because, you know, I'm human as we all are and that happens. But you know, I've been coming for a long time and I've continued to practice the things I learned in early recovery. And I think it's like anything. First, I changed my thoughts and my thoughts became not about drugs and alcohol, but they became about recovery and that changed my actions. And so my actions became not about how to get drugs and alcohol, but how to focus on being in recovery. 
taking a step forward, being of service, you know, finding my higher power, praying, <laughs> and you know, I'm not great at it, but doing my best at meditation. And that changed my actions. So my actions changed and then my habits changed. And because I continued to have habits focused on being in recovery, that ultimately changed my character. And then I had that complete psychological rearrangement the big book talks about and a spiritual awakening where I knew I, I knew fundamentally I have a purpose. I'm supposed to be here. I'm, I'm loved by my higher power and I have value. And so now I keep, you know, I keep doing the things that help me to the best of my ability stay in that space. And, and then I also look to those around me to be that power of example when needed of how they continue to do that too. And I'll provide you an example. When I was 10 years sober, my dad suddenly died and he was my hero, but I also had a challenging relationship with him growing up. He didn't understand my addiction. He thought it was all about willpower. He could not for the life of him figure out why I was behaving the way I was. And I had a lot of heartbreak in how how that was for my parents. I didn't want to be that person, but I didn't know how to be different. And I couldn't, I couldn't fix my willpower like he wanted. And when I finally did get into recovery and become what he liked to call the old Karen, you know, like the good girl that makes a difference in the world, he would say, do you still have to go to those meetings? And I'd be like, yep, sorry, daddy, that's going to be a lifelong thing. But when he passed, you know, he and I'd had this beautiful 10 years of, of just the most wonderful relationship where we had worked through a bunch of stuff and he was so proud of me. And I, you know, I had come to understand that the things he said or did in his parenting of me that, that had hurt me were, were, you know, because because of how he had grown up or because of what his belief systems were and weren't about me. And, and we really were in such a good place. When he died, I was heartbroken. But the night I got the news, you know, I jumped into action to take care of things related to his passing for my mom and my sister because I could be present when they were falling apart. And that morning, first thing, I went to a meeting. And I sat in that meeting and I cried and I poured my heart out and the people in that room surrounded me with love. And I knew to do that because someone who I admired, who had had long-term recovery when his son had committed suicide at age 16 and he found him, he got up in the morning and he went to the Sunday morning meeting and he shared and he cried and he was loved. And I watched that and I knew that if he didn't need to drink when that happened, neither did I. And I know from that experience that absolutely nothing in my life can be made better, whatever it is, if I drink or drug again. My mom got cancer twice and nearly died. I did not drink or drug over it. It wouldn't have taken her cancer away. And if she had passed, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have recovered from that any easier if I were drinking and drugging yeah. or any of the other things that life puts in front of us, which are... You know, I, I spent a significant portion of early sobriety in, reco- uh, in recovery in poverty. When I got sober, the boys and I ended up in poverty. We, you know, we didn't have heat or water or food sometimes. It was, you know, I had to start my entire career over from scratch. Life was not easy, but 
I didn't have to drink or drug over it. And I found gratitude in all the moments along the way because, because I was sober. Mm-hmm. So when I reflect back on that, I wouldn't do anything different. I am so grateful to be an alcoholic. I just like it, it to me, it's like, this is my, this is my journey. And my purpose is to be of service to others. And it is so cool to know my purpose (laughs) and to have one, right? I think that there's so many alcoholics or people looking to find recovery or even in recovery who struggle with the purpose. Like, what is my purpose? What is the point? Why am I doing this? And what the beauty of recovery is, is like, all you have to do is help another person. Yeah. That's your, that's your purpose. Like, let's just get real. Like your purpose is being a human being, helping others. Yes. And it's so, like, it can be that simple, right? I, I share this all the time. It, it, it is that simple. Just help someone else. And sometimes, you know, it's like that, that doesn't make sense. Logical <laughs> doesn't make sense. Like that's going to solve the problem that I'm having is just focusing <laughs> on helping someone else. Yeah, that's it. Just help my, someone else. That's your purpose. My sponsor called it move a muscle, change a thought. And in early recovery, obviously I didn't know what my purpose was. And I, as I was trying to get rid of all the, you know, withdrawing and the crazy thoughts that go through your head, whenever my brain would obsess, she, I would call her and she would tell me to move a muscle, change a thought. She'd tell me to you know, wash the dishes or read a book to my boys or do something. And sure enough, a few moments would go by and I would lose that obsession or craving that would come through my mind until it got to the point where now that rarely comes up for me. But my first, my first action in service was emptying ashtrays (laughs) and pouring coffee in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and then, and then I got the bright idea because I love to bake that I would bake anniversary cakes for other people because it would give me the ability to go in my kitchen and use my hands and my heart in a meaningful way. And I, so I started, I signed up and I'm like, tell me what's your favorite cake. I'm making it for your, you know, for your sober anniversary. And for like a year, I was the sober birthday cake maker. And it, it gave me such like, you know, feeling of value. And when people would eat cake and be grateful, it was like, that's my purpose. And then eventually that rolled into, you know, service in the meeting and service at area and service at district, and then getting involved in nonprofit board service and making an impact in the community, you know, being a mentor and all these other things. Now my service work is huge. Inclusion and diversity. Hello. And I get to do that. How cool is that? Yeah. It's an opportunity. Yeah. That, that is the opportunity that's been given to you. Like probably effortlessly as well. (laughs) I'm sure that that's my experience is that when I'm in alignment on that path, that door just flies right open. You're like, Oh, this is it. Yes. So nice. I'm so glad I'm here. (laughs) Right. But if I'm drinking or using or, and for me, you know, being in long-term recovery, it's it's not about the drinking or using it's like the thinking gets a little sideways. Uh, I can justify things a little bit easier and I really, it's, it's staying on my path. So what are some practical things that you do to stay on your path? Like really, really granular. Well, so I definitely, I definitely, well, I host meetings because I want to be of service in that way. So on clubhouse, I do a weekly step meeting with another member of clubhouse 
and she and I, she and I both went through the process of the 12 steps. So we're really passionate about bringing that to others. So each week we focus on one of the steps and then we share about it. I also do a daily reflections meeting. That's part of the AA literature too. And I, I read that book every day. So every day is an opportunity for me to read the daily reflections, but I like to host a meeting on that topic in particular once a week. Reading our literature is important to me because that helped me recover through my codependency, transition out of victimhood, and it also gives me something to reflect on in the day. And it's crazy how often it will be in perfect, like universal alignment with something happening in my life. Like the, the literature will tell me, you know, to pause before reacting, you know, in the reading that day, and I'll reference some of the big book. Mm-hmm. And then sure enough, I'll be in my work day and someone will communicate something in email or whatever, where I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, pause before reacting. And then I have this moment where I can put that into practice. So the other thing I do, which is really important to me, my boys and I sit down at the supper table every night and I make a home cooked meal. I've been doing that their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And each night we do that, we go around and share five things we're grateful for. And that actually started with my sponsor in early recovery. She gave me a notebook and she said, write five things you're grateful in this notebook. And so every day I would write, and it was always like, or most often in early recovery, the same five things. I was grateful for coffee. I was grateful for God. I was right. grateful for my guys. I was grateful for sunshine. Over the years, it's evolved, but but when the boys were fairly young, I started having them write in the notebook too. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like, mom, Nicholas, Zachary, Alexander, and they would all write their five things. And then we would talk about them. And so that practice transitioned to doing it at the supper table each day. So we could talk about each other's list. And I know it's an end of the day activity, but I like to you know, step away from work. I'm also a full-time doctoral student. So I step away from work and school and my service on boards and all of that pouring out of myself to others. And I connect with my boys and I hear what they're grateful for. And I share what I'm grateful for. And we have a meal together. And oftentimes we'll play games. We'll play cards or we love cards against humanity. We'll play Monopoly or whatever it is. And we just... you know, disconnect, no phones at the table and just be together. And that's a big part of my practice. And when we, something comes up and we miss that, which isn't often, but when we do, I feel that I feel the miss of connecting with my boys and being family together. Cause they really like, we're a team. Like we all grew up in AA and it has transformed all of our lives. Their father, you know, he took a different path and, and there was a lot they had to recover from. They, he does, they don't see him anymore. He's not a part of their lives, but there was a lot they had to recover from in that relationship early when they did have exposure to him and their journey in, in recovery in AA helped them not take responsibility for his actions. And, and how important is that? Like helping to break that toxic shame cycle and that cycle of addiction. They, they don't feel responsible for his struggles and anything he said or did. They learned in recovery. That's not about them. That no, it's, it, this is the thing that people don't talk about, you know, and people like poo poo Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, they bash it a lot. 
And sometimes I get really upset about it and everybody has their experience. Everybody is right. They're all, everybody's having a unique experience, but there are so many of us who embrace, who allow that program to wash over us and take care of us. And that's exactly what I'm hearing from you, Mm. that it has transformed your family. It is rehauled, made a new Karen. (laughs) It's it's given you opportunity after opportunity to become you, your divine purpose has been shown to you, which is, again, you don't go to AA thinking, oh, I'm going to find my divine purpose and I'm going to be like, right. It's like, that's not how it happens. No, but that's as a result of like showing up and doing the work that's asked that's required to grow spiritually. And you started off by saying you practice a spiritual program. That's your journey. That's you. You didn't say I go to AA. Like, that's not what you said. You say, I practice a spiritual program. And that's what I want our listeners to hear today. That's what I want you to hear mama is that everybody has their own pathway and you can find whatever pathway that is. But in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is something very spiritual there. Oh yeah. And one thing I love about it is that it doesn't tell you who that higher power has to be or what that relationship looks like, because if that had been the case, I definitely wouldn't have the relationship I have today. I mean, I grew up in a family of, of mixed religion, Methodist and Lutheran. So depending on whether we were in a Methodist church, it was joyous, a Lutheran church, it was kind of punishing and scary. So by the time I grew up, I was pretty confused about God and how to have a relationship with him. And then I became a scientist and that made it all worse because then I had this fundamental deep and understanding of how the world worked. And, you know, there was a definite conflict for me there. So when I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it said to me, you know, you don't have to have my God. You don't have to have a particular God. You don't have to have a certain faith. You, you just have a desire, have to have a desire not to drink and a willingness to be open-minded to a higher power that can help you recover and restore yourself to sanity. And the God I have today is like completely transformed from what that looked like in the beginning. And my God is so big and so forgiving and so loving and so amazing. And also has a ridiculous sense of humor in my life because life happens on life's yeah. terms, right? Yeah. And how that's the, that's awesome the God that. that that's the God that you created, right? That's the God that's been created for you so perfectly. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and yeah. you can see it like I can feel it. I can vibe off of you. You are so bright and so bubbly, right? And that's this the essence of your higher power. It's, that is one of the things that I love about women in recovery is that each of us has our own little flair, our own little thumbprint, right. That I just love. Oh, Karen, I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation. Where shall others find you, follow you, connect with you? If they're interested in your, the work that you're doing, if they want to read that article, where should they go? So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you search me by name, Karen Param hyphen Lipman. And if you want to read the article on psychology today, if you Google pandemic within the pandemic, 
It'll come up probably in your first search or you Google it with my name. And I, I hope you do. And then I ask that you share it. If there's anyone in your life you know that is not sure, doesn't understand, or maybe has perceptions of stigma around substance abuse disorder or mental health, you know, share it with them and help them help them to open their eyes because we are beautiful, amazing humans. Yeah. Beautiful. And we can't, we have to do it together. We can't do this alone. It's all about being together. Karen, thank you so much for being yeah. on the show. Thanks. Mama, please find something bright, something light and something so delicious that fills you up so you can be the best mama you can be today. Until next time, take good care. Thank you, as always, for listening to another episode. Remember, you can lock in the price for the members area. You are not alone. At $9 a month, price will go up. So I'd love to have you meditating with me and learning about the insightful tips of recovery that I have traveled. I give it all to you in the members area. You can find out more at recoverlikeamother.com forward slash membership.